You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Of the last couple of decades, the book is called Epic Tomatoes. Craig knows everything about tomatoes, and what he doesn't know hasn't been scrounged out, I don't think. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, Craig. Oh, thanks so much, Daryl, and I guess happy 2019. Um, Here we are. It's another garden season. In Raleigh right now, it's 30 degrees and gray, and we're going to hit below 20 degrees the next couple of nights. So spring, where is it? Where did it go? (laughs) Oh, spring here. I'm really worried about this year's spring because my blueberries are in full bloom, or they were before last night. My fig tree has got leaves on it. My mulberry has leaves on it. Um, My hydrangeas have leaves on them. Yep. My service berry is in full bloom. My neighbors, Bradford pears, pears are in full bloom. And, you know, frankly, they smell so bad that I really don't care if yes, they go. The cat, they also the cat pee them. flower. Yes. <laughs> cat pee or, cat, or, or vomit, maybe. Yeah. Yes. It's, yeah. It's a difficult scent to identify, but you always know it's a Bradford pear when you smell it. Yep. And the problem is they also have had last night a magnificent um, Japanese magnolia in full bloom. Oh, oh, and of course, yeah. you know what happens to those when it when it goes. The good thing yeah. is that it's too been too early for me to put out anything like tomatoes or peppers. And as a matter of fact, I haven't even started mine yet because we get iffy weather. We've had freezes as as late as um, the end of April and. We've had wow. snow on May 4th. Not mm-hmm. much snow, mm-hmm. you know, just a, just enough to talk about a few flurries. Sure. But that's the kind of weather that I don't like to put out tomatoes and peppers mm-hmm. and stuff. They're tropical plants. Sure. They like it warm. So because I'm at an elevation, even though I'm near Atlanta, uh, my weather is pretty similar to a lot of our listeners. And mm-hmm. But last night was just the pits after being near 70 degrees for a couple of weeks and and then the bottom drops out. We were at 27 last night, and it's supposed to be around 20 tonight. I yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I've got the the worry of now just about to embark on a speaking trip for a few days, and so my wife is going to be responsible for keeping, oh gosh, a few thousand seedlings alive, and uh, we're going to have a little tactical session later to think about where they're going to be while I'm gone and what they're going to need. So, uh, yeah, gardeners have, um, when gardeners travel, any point between putting that first seed in the ground and, and the uh, p- plucking that last harvest off the vine, we always have to think about, um, oh, choreography. How do we get people to care for this or pick that or water that? Um, something that non-gardeners actually never have to consider. Yeah, but, you know, there are a few things that we can do to make life a little easier for us, and I hope we have a chance to talk about that. But let's start by talking about where should people go to get their seeds. Uh, Ah, that's a big subject. It's a big subject because it's become, the, the options have truly become almost infinite. And, you know, if I think back to when my dad would get, his seed catalogs in the mail. And, you know, I used to love the fact that all of a sudden the burpee catalog would come in or the Stokes. We're talking 
maybe early 1960s, and I just grabbed those and, and absorbed them all. But the, but there weren't a ton of options. Maybe you had 30 tomatoes to choose from, maybe 15 or 20 really big seed companies. But here we are in 2019, and you can buy seeds from Amazon and eBay and a plethora of large and small companies. Some some are just Internet companies. Some still do catalogs. But it's it's dizzying, isn't it, Daryl, in terms of um, you, you can make the job so complicated you can almost become paralyzed with choice. That is true. And, of course, we can't forget that there's also our local garden center, which mm-hmm. may or mm-hmm. may not sell quality seeds. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of that, you know, it's a matter of just getting to know a particular seed vendor, uh, what brand of seeds perform well for you, whether the, your local seed garden center uh, carries varieties applicable to your area, varieties that will do well. And, of course, then we've got some of them, particularly the big box places, that sell you seeds that may work well in Miami but are not going to work in Aberdeen or someplace up north. And how are they stored? And how are they stored on the way to the store? And will they still germinate well? Because uh, I do have to say that over... And, and I don't buy that many seed packets from box stores anymore. And I'll, I'll usually wait until they're on sale, and I'm just looking to fill in a particular crop that I'm not quite as fussy on, so maybe bush beans or squash or a particular flower or herb. And I've just not found – I've found occasionally the germination to be horrible in, in that you plant – 30 bean seeds and have two plants come up. And I don't know if that is a matter of how they were stored on their way to the to the big box store or the age of the seed. So it is a little bit of um, a crapshoot. But I, but I think maybe to open this discussion up, because it is a potentially pretty rich discussion, it, you know, what, what do you wish to grow? And do you wish to be a seed saver or are you going to focus on hybrids? Are you very particular about what you're looking for, or is it um, a fairly common variety? So I think a lot of those questions will enter into, you know, where am I going to buy my seed? Um, are, am I price conscious? And that's where you really get into you need to be careful because, you know, I think we may have talked about this in the past, but there's a ton of smaller seed companies that are popping up on the Amazons and the Ebays, and sometimes people are just repackaging seed. Sometimes mm-hmm. people are selling seed. They've never seen it grow themselves. They don't know if it's the right variety. Maybe a seed saver has sent them to seed or they've saved it themselves and it's become cross. So what is the term caveat emptor, buyer beware? It Sometimes you may think that you're saving money and all you're doing is going to end up with a plant that's not what you expect and you'll be disappointed after all of that effort and starting it and planting it and nurturing it along. I believe in buying quality seeds um, from a vendor or a supplier that I know and also be very careful about watching. All seeds are required by law in, in I think every state now to have a date on them, a date when they were germination tested. And sometimes the the seed seller would just add extra seed in because the germination wasn't quite up to snuff. Uh, if you're lucky, uh, if this company is reputable like Johnny's, they'll tell you, you know, 
germination rate on this was 73%, so that you mm -hmm. know to sow extra seeds, and they usually will give you extra seeds in that. Um, so all of that kind of goes into consideration. And are you familiar with a website called Garden Watchdog? Yes, an excellent website. Garden? Excellent. For those of you that don't know, and I'll put this up on the um, on our website on their Facebook page, Dave's Garden and and Garden Watchdog has ratings of just about every seed company that you can imagine, and garden you know not just seeds but plants and and garden supplies, and by looking at the comments and. You know, even if a company has negative, some negatives, well, how did the how did the company handle it? I had a very mm -hmm. reputable company once sent me some seeds that I had ordered, and the germination was poor. And I wrote back to them, and they said that they didn't know. But not only did they refund my money, but they sent me another packet of seeds. Mm -hmm of each right. of the ones that had, had gone. And they thought that might, what might have happened is, as you said, it got damaged in transit. You know, if you have a mailbox on a sunny, you know, in a sunny spot, or if the mail truck sits in the sun while the mailman goes out to get lunch or something like that, a lot of damage can happen to seeds. They're living things. Yeah, there's another thing we found that happened some years ago where apparently the post office is using different types of equipment where people could send things like pepper seeds and tomato seeds in manila envelopes just in regular letters, and they would arrive and germinate fine. And then people started noticing that germination was dropping off and some of the seeds were looking a bit crushed. So apparently mm -hmm. letters now are going through rollers, and yes. I am no longer sending any seeds out that are not packed in a bubble. Um, type of uh, an envelope to make sure that they have the best chance. You can't do anything about temperature, but you certainly can do something about physical harm to them. So using a bubble-type cushion protection for smaller seeds, or, well, and certainly for larger seeds, I think is really important these days. And, of course, the bubble also do, does give a little bit of temperature protection yeah, because, yeah, yeah. you know, the air bubbles... Um, or insulation. I used bubble wrap in the inside of my greenhouse, or did, um, yeah. because it was single-pane greenhouse, and you just uh -huh. attach the bubble wrap on it, and voila, you know, you get a, another five degrees in there. That makes a big difference yeah. in the wintertime. I, I think, so if we're thinking about people embarking on this, and there's categories of companies where if you're really into heirlooms, one of the things that's happened very recently is the Seeds Heirs Exchange has now opened up the actual exchange to people who don't have to be members anymore and pay the annual fee. So if people are really fascinated with the varieties that, that have the stories and the colors and they want to get seeds that have been saved by their gardeners, really the Seed Series Exchange is, is kind of the go-to place. Um, and there are some companies that really focus primarily on non-hybrids. You're, you're talking Victory, Baker Creek, Southern Exposure Seed Exchange, um, there's many others, and this is not meant to be encyclopedic because gardeners that have been gardening for quite a long time will, will typically settle on a few companies that they've, they like what they've gotten from them, they've done business with them, and we don't often take our head above the ground and look at all of the other companies that are springing up. Um, you know, I know of Fruition, I know of High Mowing. There are a lot of open-pollinated slash hybrid companies, I mean heirloom companies out there now, 
And then you've got the big boys like the Burpees and the Stokes and even Johnny's who mix in hybrids. So there are so many different ways now to shop depending on what you want your garden to focus on. And the Garden Watchdog is a fantastic tool then. Once you settle on a company, go read about it and see what other people think about it. And one technique that I like to use when I'm doing catalogs, when I'm going through them, is I like to go through the catalogs and and turn over the corners on interesting varieties or interesting Mm -hmm. sections. And then I'll make a a check mark by them. And after I've gone through all the catalogs and have about 100 more seeds than I possibly would have room (laughs) for or time for in this lifetime, and I will go through and choose what I really can't live without. Yes, And that saves me. If you're one of these people that, you know, just goes nuts, like a kid in a candy store over seeds, um, as I am, that is a way to kind of slow yourself down. Yeah. Um, I think you the other thing that that's... Three check marks, you know, you, know <laughs> yeah. that you really want that. <laughs> and, you know, as a collector of old seed catalogs, one of the most charming parts of them often are seeing the penmanship of the people who had those catalogs and went through and circled different varieties and dog-eared certain pages. So you're describing a technique that's been used from from what I've seen way back into where American seed catalogs began to proliferate, which is really just the 1860s and the 1870s, lots of, lots of old penmanship. I think the other important thing, Daryl, and we can chat about this briefly to, to have in mind when you're buying seeds, is you'll always or invariably, not maybe always, always, have more seed than you need to plant. And so it's good to do a little research to figure out what is the optimum germination range for a particular species of plant. And, for example, tomatoes will really last quite well, even stored just at the temperature of your room for 12 or 14 years. Peppers, as I've discovered this year, going back to germinate some older peppers, you really pushing it if you're trying to get seven or eight-year-old pepper or eggplant seed to germinate. Mm-hmm. Um, lettuce will have its own span. Onions will have its their own lifespan. Beans will have their own Very lifespan. Yeah. Um, yeah so. We have to take a break right now, but when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about seed length and get into how to, do, how to grow from seed, because a lot of people, I think, are afraid of it. But we'll be back right after this. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Get your pen and paper ready. If there's a move in your near future, I'm here to tell you that the folks I used and now recommend is Around Town Movers. Timothy and the guys recently moved me, and I am and was totally satisfied with a sometimes not-so-fun experience moving. Call Timothy at 770-378-4708 and make it a good move and a good experience. Around Town Movers for that local or cross-country move. Timothy, Around Town Movers, in my opinion, are the best. That's Around Town Movers. Call them. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. 
You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm here today with Craig LaHuyer, and we are talking tomatoes and growing them from seed, tomatoes and, and other things from seed. And right before the break, Craig, you mentioned that you can get seeds will germinate still perfectly well after several years in many cases. Onions mm-hmm. are only, I think, about three years max, and yes. sometimes yes. I have trouble with onions at two years. And lettuce is about five years for uh-huh. me. How about for you? Is that it sounds yep. about right? Right, ar- right, around, right around there. Now, I'm, I'm, so I'm doing a really interesting little project this year where I've got, I want to go back and reselect from some of the dehybridization work I've done on peppers and eggplants. So I planted two flats, 50 cells each, of older eggplant and pepper seed going back to eight or nine years. And the fresher seed germinated in eight to ten days, and I actually plopped those plants out and put the, you know, the ones that were still slumbering or dead because I didn't know which. But I'm getting germination on some eggplants and peppers that are maybe seven, eight, nine years old. So far, 37 days. Excuse me, 37 days it has taken for the seed to germinate. Now, the moral of this story is don't give up. If you've got old, cherished seed, you really need that plant. You're really depressed. You think it's dead. Well, plant it and just wait and see what happens. And sometimes it can take a month or more for an eggplant, a pepper, or a tomato seed to decide it's ready to join the living. And you know what, Craig? I've discovered along the way that, because I, I never throw out a flat um, because I discovered many years ago that if it, as soon as I gave up on something it's kind of, and, and re-sowed a flat <laughs> with, the, with the same vegetable type, it's, the, the original one is going to grow. But I discovered that sometimes it seems to get them going if you let the thing dry out for a few days or a week. You know, yes. and I discovered that totally by accident. I had tossed yes. it under the bench in my greenhouse, and it didn't get watered. And then one day I had moved some plants over top of it under the bench, so the, it got some moisture coming down on it. And lo and behold, if it didn't start germinating. Well, you just described Mexico midget tomato because it doesn't germinate the way any other tomato germinates and often I've planted 50 seeds nothing comes up after a month then I'll just dump that pot onto the table and repot up other tomatoes I look at my tomato plants that I'm selling in the driveway and I'm telling people oh by the way there's 15 little Mexico midget babies that have decided to wake up enjoying your dwarf variety in that <laughs> pot so you now have you now have a bonus pack um, yeah and it's it could be temperature it could be drying it could be a little bit of additional fermentation that goes on in the seed surface. Um, I don't know. We could get into a whole show about, you know, germinating techniques and things that we may be able to use to enhance it. But uh, So certain things may frustrate you, but you will often be surprised. happens with flower seeds sometimes. You pot up a bunch sure. of tomatoes and peppers, and you've got dahlias or zinnias mm-hmm. or petunias coming up in your tomato plants. <laughs> Uh, Those of us that reuse seed mix, seed starting mix, um, often find that that happens, or, or the same yeah. flats that that's yeah. used for something else. Now, a lot of people, Craig, like I said, are afraid to grow plants from seed. Mm-hmm. But seeds are easy. They're fun. 
I bet you people would be very surprised to know. I mean, have you ever had any failures when you're growing? I mean, you are the man. You are the tomato <laughs> expert. Um, so the two failures, I guess, I would describe that I've had with seedlings um, are, and maybe maybe we'll mention three. Early on, before I settled on a, the type of seed starting mix that works best, I would end up with some fungus growing in the pots or um, I wouldn't have really good drainage at the bottom, so we'd get a little bit soupy in there at certain times between watering uh, or between letting it dry out. And I'd start with some damping off. Now, I never had rampant damping off, but it's always depressing, and that's what happens when a fungus attacks the plant right where the stem is at the soil, and essentially it's like Paul Bunyan goes through and starts chopping down your little babies. Um, yeah, and, it, and that it's is not the a good saddest thing. thing in the world. When you come it's home from work one day and you yeah. find that you've got 30 or 40 little dead tomato plants <laughs> or whatever kind of plants, and I, I used to do that a lot because I was yep. too nice to my plants. When I first started this, when I was a kid, I would... I would just water them too often. My mother would tell me not to. Yeah, it's but, like overfeeding you know, the goldfish. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh, and until yeah. you kill the goldfish, you don't learn. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But, but when, I found, when I've settled on a, so when I think about a seed starting mix that's really good, I think sterility is a really important top uh, aspect. I think uh, ease of drainability, but also ease of absorption. And, you know, if we wanted to talk about a brand that I've sworn by for now, maybe the past 20 years, it is SunGrow's Metromix 360, which I gather from the emails I get around the country is not always that easy to find. And what I send people to is the, the SunGrow site to see if there's a contact on there, and they can send a note and find out if there's a local source for it. Uh, my backup is a Fafford, F-A-F-A-R-D mix. But really, I mean, if you look at, the Johnny's catalog and look at their seed starting supply, they sell a seed starting mix. In your garden center, not maybe a big box store so much, but in a garden center, there are both organic and standard versions of seed starting mixes, which really are just blends. They're sterile and they're blends of perlite or vermiculite and peat moss and either a sterilized loam or a really finely ground uh, um, shaved bark or wood ash or compost. But it, it, they need a surfactant of some sort in there because when you water them, you want the water to absorb in. And anybody who's tried to water peat moss knows if you plant, if you were to plant seeds and string peat, that water will just kind of roll off unless it's really hot. So I, I do like the sterile mix. Um, it dries out nice and easily. It takes up water nice and easily. It falls apart and crumbles easily if you are doing what I'm doing, which is dense planting. Um, but before crumbling, we get into the details... The coming apart yeah. one is really important. The other thing, yeah. what I noticed about some seed starting mixes is that if they're damp and you rub them between your fingers and they get that slimy vermiculite feel yes. on, on them, yes. stay away from those. Yes. Because yes. they almost invariably hold too much water for a beginner. If you are a greenhouse yeah. grower growing in a plug tray where... You know, the difference between watering and not watering, you know, 15 minutes, all your plants can be dead. And you have yeah. a special person to water. Those are great. But for your general beginner, I would stay away from them, avoid them like the plague, or mix them with some ground pine bark or, or perlite or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah. I like, I can get ProMix here. 
Promix yep, BS. I like it Promix. comes in a a three and a half, three point eight cubic foot compressed bale, uh-huh. which means that this fairly small bale, which may be waist high on me, is weighs a ton. <laughs> well, not yep, literally yep. a ton, but it's really heavy. And you start empty taking the uh, taking pots full of the mix out of there and it just keeps expanding and expanding and expanding. You can <laughs> you can you can do a hundred pots and you won't even make a dent in it. Wow. Um, yep, I've heard good things what? about that. Um if you're going to use a huge amount of that for you know, like if you're going to use it in your containers, as I do, there are a couple of things that you can do. You manage, me, uh, mentioned needing a wetting agent. And when any of these products have been out in the sun for a long time, the wetting agent tends to break down. So you can't, mm-hmm. re- you can't get the material to, to wet down easily. A nursery friend showed me a trick, and he said what you do is you cut a little hole in it, stick the hose in the bag, uh, and yeah. let it get kind of full, and then kick the bag around a few times. Let it sit yep. for, you know, 10 minutes and kick it over. And then let it sit for another 10 minutes, kick it over again. And I do somewhat the same thing. I'll use, you know, normally I don't need, I'm not filling all my containers at once. So I'll take a big Rubbermaid container and I'll pour water into that and, you know, not, you know, put the lid on it and then kick it over once or twice. It works great. Yeah. And and what I think is discussion. Yeah, okay. what this discussion shows is Daryl and I and other gardeners and really good seed starters, we don't have like a list of step one, step two, step three, step four. What we have is a general thought of what we need at the end of the process, and we improvise a little bit. Um, it could be that the quality of your seed starter varies a little bag to bag. It could be that your material you use each year varies a little bit. So this is where there's some touch and feel um, it's it's almost like there's two ways to cook. You take a recipe out of a book, and you follow it all, and you may get something that's kind of good, but you may find it a little bit underspiced or a little bland, or you understand what you want at the end, and then you start with that recipe as a starting point, and then along the way, you may taste it a little bit or stir it a little extra or think, this doesn't make sense. I'm going to add a little bit more of this or that. Then you create something that you really love at the end of the process. And I, I actually think the, the analogy between gardening and cooking is, is really there in terms of getting that confidence to, to try some different things. Don't go by the book all the time. Maybe discover something new. My dense planting technique, there's no doubt, it, people have probably used it for hundreds of years, but they didn't have social networking or a platform to show it and discuss it and to spread it around. So I am not responsible for discovering that. What I am hopefully helpful in is bringing it to more and more people and then demonstrating that if you're space-challenged, which is exactly what drove me to use it, I needed, I needed to start thousands of seeds without a greenhouse in a very small footprint. So I was almost driven to the dense planting technique by need and then developed it a little bit and tweaked it so that it actually works very well for me. And that's pretty much all I did to get that out there. And 
you know, I came across it for the same reason. Um, back when my husband and I first got married, we lived in a little three-room apartment. I was also growing African violets for sale. I had sometimes up to 300 African violets in there, if you can imagine them on all layers <laughs> of the windows. And so I had one little plant light and my desk lamp, my fluorescent desk lamp to start seeds under. So I used the dense planting method, which we'll talk about after the break because we're only about a minute and a half in. Mm -hmm. But dense planting basically means, um, you know, in traditional planting, you'll put one plant, one seed per cell, maybe two, if you're not sure about your germination rates. And in dense planting, if you go to Craig's website, which is craiglahulier.com, and we'll spell it for you before the end of the show, um, you can see that Craig has literally hundreds of seedlings in a regular, you know, 12 by 18 flat. It's just amazing. You look at it, it looks like a little forest. But <laughs> it's a way, because yeah. Craig was growing them for sale, too, and so you needed needed to get those up and growing, and you had your a table next to your desk, I guess it is. Yeah, I've got one on each side. And, you know, people will say, well, why don't you put a seed in a cell? I said, well, because in a one-by-two-foot footprint, I could either have 50 plants or I could have 2,000 plants. There it is. <laughs> that That's why I do it. And, that you know, it, it's it's a lot of fun. It works great. It's really inspiring when you see those clusters of plants. And we'll get back into it, I think, um, after we take a break. Right, right after the break. Yep. We're going to take a break right now, and when we come back, we'll talk all about that. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and I'm here today with Craig LaHuyer, the North Carolina tomato man, author of <laughs> Epic Tomatoes, and we were we are talking today about seed starting because that's on a lot of people's minds right now. And before the break, we were talking about some ways, different ways that we start seeds. But we also want to tell you about some of the kind of non-negotiables for good seedlings. So, Craig, yeah. what is your number one? Well, good. we talked a lot about good quality seed starting mix so we could avoid things like the damping off. So it's, it's mm -hmm. not as simple as going out and just getting a scoop of your garden soil or going to a box store and getting a bag of topsoil or whatever. It, it's really, you know, I, I always think of gardening in that it's easier to do it right from the start than to fix something that's broken. And so a little bit extra money spent up front can really alleviate a lot of heartache later on. Um, other than that, nobody has to be afraid of starting seeds because it's as simple as something that holds that mix that has holes in the bottom because you need the drainage. Most seedlings hate wet feet. It's about uh, warmth for most crops. Um, some, like lettuce, will are cold-weather cold crops, and they'll pop up just happily in the cool. But for me, I have very inexpensive constant-temperature heat mats that maybe add a little bit of temperature to it, um, I it's not a must, but I am a shallow planter. So I'll put my mix in a container, and I'll wet it down, and then I'll put my seeds on the top, and then I'll sprinkle more mix on top only until the seeds aren't visible anymore. Um, I like to use a dome or a plastic wrap loosely placed on top to conserve moisture and to make sure those seeds don't dry out. But I get the majority of my tomato seeds to germinate in three days, four days, 
and peppers and eggplant in six to eight days. Basil will pop up in two days. Lettuce will often pop up in two days. Um, those that really get into the whole process of watching their seedlings emerge will have a lot of fun looking at the differences between the emergence of different species at different times. Um, just interesting. And, that, so and that's they're really fun just it. to watch anyway. There's yes, nothing like watching those little hairpins coming up out of the yes. soil. And it's then the re- it, the it, hair, it makes you, yeah. It springs up open. Yes, yes. It's so much The fun. hairpins, bobby pins, I love it. That's what tomatoes <laughs> look like, are little hairpins. And, and it, it's something to get you to jump out of bed in the morning and go check every day because uh-huh. you're, you're, it's knowledge. You're gaining knowledge, all this stuff you're learning. Then once they're up, though, there, there is a need for light, and that light can be applied through a window for a while uh, until you don't want your plants to stretch too much. Uh, certainly grow lights, and that's a whole huge topic now because you've got LED lights thrown into the mix. Um, I've not used those. I had a discussion the other day with Joe Lample about how he's loving them, so whole other topic that I need to explore, keeping moisture, getting some warmth, and getting sufficient light. But really, it, it, as long as you don't overwater, as long as you have good drainage, as long as you have, um, you're using good quality mix, you shouldn't lose seedlings. Now, one of the other disasters to bring up now is pets, because my second huge disaster was when the cat got in and was curious about my seedlings and I had and essentially dumped 30 Dixie cups of labeled seedlings onto the floor, and the plants fell out, and the labels fell oh, out. Yes. So I had 30 plants where I had no idea what they were. Um, so, and and if you're if you are have germinating plants in front of a window, cats will often like nothing better to think, "Wow, they put a bed out for me. It's in front of the window, uh-huh. and it's nice and oh, warm." Yes. So I'm I'm just going to lay on that flat and put little cat prints in every cell. So. Um, you know, just just little things that you may not ordinarily think about to watch for as you're growing these, and uh, and you don't get mad at the cat if they do it because all they're doing is what they're supposed to do: find a nice, cozy, curious spot to. And they cozy especially up to. like it if you use heat mats. They think yes. that, that extra heat from the heat mat, and of course you're putting you've put your flat. If you use window sills, they're in the sunniest spot that you can find in the house, which is cat territory. Uh, which exactly. is why I don't have any plants on my <laughs> near my windows anymore. <laughs> now yeah, I have a closed light. office door. And yes. and I found that um, particularly in older homes, there isn't enough light intensity unless you have big windows because most of them had kind of big window frames, uh, window sashes, and mm-hmm. so it it didn't give me enough light. So I switched to. Um, to fluorescent lights, just regular, mm-hmm. inexpensive fluorescent shop lights. You know, yep. the kinds that are four feet long. They have two bulbs in them uh, and a little reflector over it. And that gave me plenty of light. And if you're going to go do under fluorescent lights, put the lights just an inch or two above the seedlings. Because if, yeah. if the lights are up high, like you'd have them working in your shop, it's enough light for you to see, but it's not enough for the plants to grow. Now, with LEDs, yep. LEDs you need to keep them raised up, and yeah. you don't want to use incandescent lights. That's the old-fashioned. I guess they don't even make those anymore, but Probably you can not. still get yeah. some bulbs for them uh, or may have some. But the old, fluorescent, uh, old non-fluorescent or non-LEDs got too, way too hot. 
Yeah, and, and I think Joe told me. Go ahead. Joe told me oh. that he actually, whereas you have shop lights within an inch of the top of the growing stem, I think he has his LEDs, and I think they're 300 watt, around three feet yeah. of a gap. So that's that's a distinctive difference between the LEDs and the um, uh, the old shop light fluorescence in terms of that gap between the light and the plant tip. Yeah, Joe had um, did a Facebook Live last Saturday, which I think he has posted. I will try to find that and post it for our listeners so they can look. And you can see his setup on there. Yeah. Um, I think he's got some on Joe, his Joe Gardner website, too. But, yes, with the LEDs, you can put them up higher because you've got a higher light intensity than with the shop yeah. lights. Um, the you know, shop lights are cheaper than, than the LEDs, but the prices on the LEDs, thanks to the marijuana growing industry, the prices <laughs> have come down considerably from what yeah. they used to be. But, you know, my shop light fixtures are 30 years old, and some of the bulbs that I'm using, because I only have them on, you know, um, uh, during the day for a few days of the spring, some of those bulbs are 15 or 20 years old themselves. So it's... I mean, talk about the, the the epitome of economics with shop lights and fluorescence. Um, but, but you what do grow differently than a lot of people that grow under lights. I know. Yes, I, absolutely. You do it um, because you grow out thousands, and you get your plants out into the garage fairly early on. Uh, I keep mine inside for about the first six weeks. And uh-huh. then in the last couple of weeks, I start, I, I get them hardened off. I take them outside for an hour or so in, in the shade the first day, and then I gradually lengthen the time and the light intensity yep. until yep. I'm ready to, to have them out for sale. But other than that, for the first six weeks, they are on with the fluorescent lights um, for about 16 hours a day. And yeah. I also, since it gets warm there, um, even though fluorescents aren't particularly warm, uh, I keep a fan running because I found mm-hmm. having a fan running in the room keeps them a little um, stronger, stiffer. They uh-huh. develop just like a person exercising. You know, if if you didn't move, you'd be really floppy. And it's the same way with plants. So I, I get the fan on there, and that also helps prevent damping off, particularly yes. if you live in a, a damp climate like we do. And that so here, I'm just remember is that fungus that yeah. kills them right at the soil level. So I'm looking at the, my data sheet that I've got in my Google Drive here. I planted my first flat of tomatoes February 20. The vast majority of them were up February 24th, and they went, into the garage for the first time under lights on February 28th. That is eight days after planting the seeds, and they actually got a little bit of time outside on March 1st. So what I'm doing now, I'm going towards minimizing time, certainly in the window, under the lights, and working to get them hardened off when they're densely planted in you know, 25, 30, 40 plants per cell in a 50-cell flat within a week if the weather is right. And this is where, again, touch and feel comes in. If it's 50, 55 degrees out and it's calm and it's filtered sun and it's not raining, um, I'll watch the watering very, very, very carefully. But I'm leaving them out there pretty much three, four hours working towards um, a full day. And 
I'm bringing them back into the lights or back in the garage only when the weather gets really bad for them. That would be rain, that would be windy rain particularly, and it certainly it would be frost. And I've found that, and here's another thing I'm doing a little bit differently. I'm actually, as soon as I can, even before true leaves, I am popping out that cluster of 25, 30, 40 plants and giving them each a three-and-a-half-inch pot. So I'll, I, that's an 18-pot strip that I've got in a basket flat. There'll be 18 varieties of tomatoes in there, densely planted, and I can leave them in there for quite a while, well until I get true leaves, until I separate them to individual pots. But they're getting hardened off in there. They have an easier transition once they're separated. But what it gives me is a much bigger reservoir of potting mix so that they dry out far, far, far less quickly, and they're easier to maintain. So each year I tweak this a little bit differently, and part of that, Daryl, is due to just evolving weather that we're getting. We're, we're getting warmer days in the spring, and I'm getting more abilities to leave the plants out earlier than I used to maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And, of course, that's going to vary for people in different parts of the country. Exactly, exactly. You can never... You can't take what anybody does with seed starting and write it down as a black-and-white recipe and say this is what everybody should do. You you take the principles, and we talked about the non-negotiables, what the plants need, and then you kind of titrate that against what are your conditions, how are your plants looking, do they, and I think we want to talk about this, what's the color of the foliage like? I'll let you raise this. It's an important point. What temperature are they experiencing? Are they doing too much photo? Are they bending to the light? Are they getting too leggy, et cetera, et cetera? All these things that you'll observe and then you'll react to by doing something. And once you have been growing seeds for a while, you'll see what all these big fancy terms mean. Um, you mentioned plants going towards the light. If you find that your plants, if you're growing them uh, under, if you're growing them next to a window, if you find that they're constantly leaning towards the light and getting quite a bit taller than um, you, you want to aim for a short, stocky plant. And if mm -hmm. they're getting leggy to the point where they're leaning over and maybe even flopping a little bit, you know that they're just not getting enough light. Yes, um, yes, And exactly. we have to take a break in about a minute. But when we come back, I'd like to talk to you about, uh, about the leaf color because... Mm -hmm. One of the things that you do very much differently is you grow your plants a lot cooler, in mm -hmm. a lot cooler temperatures than I was taught were ever correct. And that may be, you know, the difference in optimized for greenhouse growing, which I assume it was, or uh, maybe you're onto something that the whole world should be doing. <laughs> we don't know yet. <laughs> but it's an interesting subject, and we'll talk about that as soon as we come back from this little break. America's Web Radio is the most diverse and informative radio station anywhere in cyberspace. We have shows about health, business, current events, entertainment, home care, and everything in between. We appreciate your continued support of America's Web Radio. Welcome back to our final segment of America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm talking with Craig LaHuyer here, and we are talking right now about growing tomatoes from seed. And one of the things that Craig does differently than what that like the normal stuff is that he gets his plants out when it's still quite chilly out. Now, it used to be that you always wanted to keep your 
tomato plants nice and warm, you know, 72 or so in the daytime once they're germinated and, and not lower than about 65 at night. But Craig breaks all the rules and gets away with it. And I suspect, <laughs> Craig, that the way that the rules were done was for big greenhouse producers, you know, the ones that sell mm-hmm. to the big box stores, to optimize yes. their uh, growing because you know, they very often will start their seeds in special germination ch- chambers, which are are sealed and kept at perfect temperatures for each crop. And there's you know universities go and research all of this stuff, so they do get the uh, the optimal temperature for germination of of every crop, and even sometimes with different varieties. But you, because of circumstance, you break the rules and you get away with it. Well, here's, here's an anecdote for you. So, uh, you know, people come and get my seedlings, and they they say, you know, these seedlings are much smaller than what, you know, what I find at um, a big box store or at a farmer's market, and those have been greenhouse grown. But they said, then I, but I bring yours home, and I plant them, and they get going right away, and within a few weeks, they're bigger than the ones that I bought from the box store. So I think... I think what my plant, what I'm doing, by the way I'm doing it, is getting my plants much better adjusted for getting setting into the ground, and they don't check at all when they're finally planted out. Whereas I think a lot of plants are grown for good, quick sales to bring the biggest plants possible to people when they are shopping, but they've been coddled. So I mean, that's kind of how I look at it. Um, that's not scientific at all. That's just anecdotal. But you know, my plants do great. And, uh, yeah, and of course, a lot of people, they go out and they buy their plants at the big box store. They've been in greenhouse, and they don't know that they should let them sit outside for a fairly short yes. period of time the first couple of days or, or get mm-hmm. some kind of shade. In the olden days, they, the farmers used to go and cut privet branches and stick them into the ground next to the tomato plant to give it some shade. And then a couple of you know days later, mm-hmm. the the leaves of the privet would fall off and um, so when the plant no longer needed the shade and that would give them some protection. Um, and the other thing is, of course, if big plants, people always like to put a big plant in the ground, but unless that big plant also has a big root system, yep. it's going to spend a lot of time growing new roots rather before it starts putting on top growth. But there's one thing that is interesting to me, and a lot of tomato growers, amateurs like we were, um, will find that their leaves turn purple, particularly the lower leaves. Sometimes it will happen even on seedlings, but um, Mm -hmm. very more often on more mature plants. And that could be, of course, a sign of phosphorus deficiency because you don't have enough phosphorus in the plant, or Mm -hmm. it could be that the root system isn't taking it up fast enough because the root system is a little rocky, maybe you've been keeping it too wet. Or it may be because it's gotten too cold. And you had mm-hmm. mentioned once, Craig, that you get a lot of purple leaves on your tomatoes. But as mm-hmm. soon as the weather warms up, what happens? Yeah, they they green up. And, green. Uh, yep. and I think if people, this is another thing for people who are especially kind of new to doing this to observe is, um, you know, t- tomato plants have a particular color, and there is subtle variation in leaf color, variety to variety, but pretty much they're they're kind of a medium green. But w- you watch them as they're growing, and you get them transplanted, and that the, the color of a tomato plant 
appears to be slightly different with different angles of the sun at different times of the day. And often mm -hmm. the plants look fantastic in the morning. And then if you take a look at them in the late afternoon, they look a little bit sickly. And then you just have to tell yourself different wavelengths of light are getting through. You know, I'm seeing them a little bit differently. But um, I think the point I was going to make is look for things like the purplish color and how it goes away. But once you transplant a plant into its own pot and get it going, I kind of know when you're catching on when the center growth, the new regular foliage coming out of the middle of the plant, has almost a vibrant, more pale green color when compared with the outside leaves. That tells me the root system is now filling out the pot. The plant is now happily doing all of the types of photosynthesis it needs to do, and this plant's about to take off. And that is often correlated when it, you start getting warm, uh, more mild evenings. Um, mm -hmm. the, tomato, the, tomatoes really, the tomato plants don't like it as much if you've got like a nice warm day. That's fine. But then if it gets into the upper 30s, low 40s at night, it slows down again. I think roots are growing, but the top growth is not doing a whole lot. You start getting those warm days and warm evenings, they take off like a rocket. And, and I have measured once a plant gets mature, indeterminate plants grow two to three inches a day. Leave it to a they scientist, measure plant growth. <laughs> yeah, well, I did because I, I've dwarf... I've done it too. I'm such a nerd. Yes. yes, well, dwarf varieties grow vertically an inch a day, and indeterminates grow vertically two to three inches a day, which essentially gives you the real cultural differences of those two varieties of plants and how you... And we're getting ahead of ourselves, of course, into another... I'm sure another a show, but we're, it just shows you that... We're going to do a whole other show yeah, on this. Yeah, we'll do another show. But, yeah, it's... Uh, and I hope the excitement that um, is coming through the discussion we're having of two avid gardeners is how it can be not nerve-wracking for young uh, or inexperienced seed starters, but just fun. You know, get your hands dirty, get in there, learn stuff. You'll lose a few, you'll gain a lot, and then everything you learn this year, you'll apply to next year, and then you'll try some different things even at... Um, Yep. Gardeners become and, really and smart really fast. And circumstances will change, and you'll yes. try something different yet, like, like both of us have done. Um, I've grown them in a greenhouse, both my own and in a large commercial greenhouse. And everything is a little bit different, but the basics are all the same. Those five yep. things that we need to start with that we yep, talked yep. about, our soil mix and yeah. watching the moisture. Now, one of the things, though, Craig, you mentioned about the color of the leaves, and a lot of gardeners mm -hmm. get really bent out of shape about the color of the leaves, but there are mm -hmm. some things to watch out for with leaf color. And one of them you mentioned is the light, slightly lighter color of new yeah. growth. Um, yep. If how, one of the things that you may notice sometime is that if you have a plant that it grows gets kind of a chartreuse color green foliage and it's not mm -hmm. a variety that's supposed to, it may be that you're over fertilizing it. Yes, particularly yes. with and you'd think well fertilizer makes it green up. Well, sometimes it doesn't. A lot of right. new uh, potting mixes have mycorrhiza in them. Those are little bacteria yep. that are bacteria-like things that are that help a plant grow. But they're very sensitive to high phosphorus in your fertilizer. So if you yeah. go out and use, um, uh, let's just call it the blue stuff, so we don't name names, yep. uh, and you pour that on in plants that have been treated with the mycorrhiza in the soil mix. Mm -hmm. 
you will get the most screaming chartreuse color you have ever <laughs> yeah. imagined. It is yellow green, 1955 yellow yep. green. And, and it's horrible, and you think that you have killed your plant. And if you don't wash the excess fertilizer out, you may very well, because that very often will then turn into fertilizer burn later. But yep. pay attention to the color. Um, yep, yep. Tomato plant, tomato leaves age from the bottom up, and if the bottom leaves turn a little bit yellow, chances are that's just because the tops are growing very happily. So if you yep. see the tops growing happily and the bottoms yep. turning yellow, don't worry about it. But if you see spots, yeah, yep. or <laughs> if you see gray stuff, yep. or things like that, particularly spots, because spots yep. tells you that there is something something wrong in there. Um, And one of the things that we wanted to talk about a little bit today is seed treatments because in recent years, some less than reputable seed companies have sent out some seeds that have been carrying disease and some reputable seed companies have been sending out um, tomatoes that seeds that are carrying a disease. Or, and of course, home seed savers that are growing in conditions where, you know, like last year in my garden, I think there was every disease in the book, depending on what time, you know, what the temperature had been a couple of weeks before. We had early blight. We had late blight. um, We had septoria leaf spot. Um, And so what, Craig, are you did some research last year, and I am dying to hear in three and a half minutes. What's your research shows? Uh, Well, I think, just quickly, I've been gardening since 1981, and every time we have a discussion, uh, and I have a discussion with any gardener, I learn something new, and we've covered a lot of new ground today. So gardening is wonderful because we always are learning. But so last year I grew one of my favorite varieties, Nepal, in a straw bale. Uh, I had 10 straw bales. All other, uh, so it's 20 indeterminate plants. 19 of them thrived. Nepal looked great until one day it had clear signs of fusarium wilt. Um, the plant was yellowing. It was wilting, and it wouldn't come back upon watering, and it died very quickly. So next to it was a red brandy wine that was as happy as a clam. So I'm thinking, fusarium wilt. I went into my records. turns out that the seed for that Nepal was saved from a plant that had fusarium when I was growing in my side garden some years ago. So then I went to the Cornell site, and we'll put the link of this, and it turns out that diseases can be embedded in the the seed coat. This is the list for tomato. These are diseases that can be in the seed, alfalfa mosaic, anthracnose, bacterial canker speck and leaf spot, cucumber mosaic, early blight, fusarium wilt, late blight, leaf mold, septoria, tomato mosaic, verticillium, and double streak. Depending wow, on, that's practically everything except late blight that a tomato can get. Yes, and so I didn't people are that. growing. People are growing. Yeah, people are growing and saving seeds. Things may be hitting their plants. Now, one of the things, the easiest thing to do is to water treat seed, and it's easy as soaking that seed before planting in water that's 50 degrees centigrade. That's 122 Fahrenheit. That's probably the temperature of water that's coming out of your hot water faucet. In fact, it's not even as hot as that for 25 minutes. And so what I did is I went to Amazon and found myself an inexpensive laboratory constant temperature heater 
and I would equilibrate the temperature of the water in some little glass vials. I'd put the seeds in those vials and just immerse that in the 50-degree water for 25 minutes. Then I would dump that into my seed cell, and my plants are up and growing. Um, you may not even need the that particular equipment because if indeed tap water is warmer than 122, which I'm sure it is, you could find a setting on your stove and use a thermometer and get that temperature for 25 minutes for your tomato seeds. And I would actually suggest doing it on peppers and eggplant if you've had issues. But it takes away that concern that I'm injecting a disease into the vascular system of my plant, and I'm actually defeated before I'm even in the game by planting that seed that may have that disease in there. So, but there, you know, there are chemical treatments uh, that people have used. I think TSP or bleach. Um, it's a whole area of research that we could delve into more. But if you've saved it's plants, a lot of time. <laughs> I know. We will but if you develop, save seeds, yeah, yeah. We will delve into this because what you have just said in the last couple of minutes is probably the best advice that any gardener has gotten. And that is all the time we have for this week, but we're going to get Craig back when he's back in town in another couple of weeks. So I hope you will stay with listening to us, and we'll be back next week with more America's Homegrown Veggie Show. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.